I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derish chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derish Chai Experiment, the show where we use modern scholarship to gain a deeper insight into just what the Bible means. The book of Deuteronomy takes the form of a suzerain vassal treaty. It's an ancient document that governed, or rather provided the wisdom necessary for a subject or vassal to operate in relationship to the high king. And three weeks ago, we looked at the various sections of the suzerain vassal treaty and where they could be found in the course of the book of Deuteronomy. And last week, we began what is commonly called the legal portion of the book. Now, in our modern minds, what we will read for the next several chapters has nothing to do with legality. There are very few commands, and the commands that are given are rather obscure or extremely repetitive. Yes, yes, we get it. We're to keep the commands and do them, which, if you think about it, is a command in its own right. But for the most part, these next few chapters focus not on what we consider law, and yet, in the course of the book of Deuteronomy, these chapters fall into the sections of law. When we get down to it and really examine these next few chapters and consider them in light of what we talked about last week, the ten words acting as an index for the remainder of the law portions of the book, then these chapters cover the first command, a command that is not a command at all. Deuteronomy 5, 6-7 I am Hashem your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods in my face. And Deuteronomy takes the next six chapters to explore this topic. Six chapters, from chapter 6 to chapter 11, delves into what this means and the implications for the people of Israel. This means that more time is spent on this one short, not really command than are spent on any two of the other commands added together. And so we discover from this that this is the foundation of everything else that comes. Who Hashem is and who we are in relationship to Hashem is of such vital importance that six chapters of this wisdom extrapolation were spent on this topic. And when we really get down to it, the topics that are addressed in these chapters form the foundation of the gospel message. They reveal what it means to have Hashem as your God, what it means to have been redeemed, what it means to have no other gods. And the entire book is the extrapolation of Hashem as king. And the ideals explored in this section reveal a proto-gospel that we often miss because we hold fast to 16th century ideas of what 1st century authors were describing. Ideas such as faith, grace, salvation, and the gospel itself get lost in ideas that did not arise until much later. And fortunately enough, these next few chapters of Deuteronomy, while expounding on what it means that Hashem is your God, provide primers to gospel ideas that we can then extrapolate into the New Testament. Starting from here and working forward will help us to gain a more accurate grasp of these New Testament ideals, 
rather than the common way of starting with our current understanding and then imposing it back on Scripture. And so before we begin, there is one thing that needs to be established. It's something that I've touched on before, but we need a refresher before beginning. And that is the idea that the gospel is a royal message. In the centuries surrounding the life of our Messiah, the word euagelion, the word that we translate as gospel, did not simply mean just any good news. You could not tell the euagelion of how you found a $20 bill on the side of the road. That might be good news, but it's personal good news. In the centuries surrounding the Messiah, the word euagelion was reserved for imperial good news. The euagelion of the birth of the son to the emperor, the euagelion of the great victory over some barbarian tribe, the euagelion of the royal marriage, etc. The gospel of Yeshua was never a personal message, and so the common gospel of Christ died for your sins and so now you can go to heaven when you die. It's only a partial gospel and it falls woefully short of the true gospel. The gospel was an imperial message. Yeshua has been crowned as king and his kingdom is coming to earth. And we find this idea reflected throughout the entirety of the New Testament. Now I'm going to use the ESV for these next set of verses just to make the point that this is not something that can only be seen in a certain translation. Romans 1, 1 through 1-5 Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace, an apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. This opening of the book of Romans is packed full of royal language, and it speaks of what the gospel concerns, what it contains. It says that you, it says that Yeshua was descended from David, that he is the son of God. This is a term that's applied to kings for millennia surrounding the life of Yeshua. It's a term that can demonstrably be shown to have been applied to Roman emperors. He is called Christ or Messiah, which is the anointed king, and he is called Lord. Now, this is not the name Hashem, but this is the word master. And it is through him that we have received grace in order to bring about obedience. To find a second example of the royal gospel in action in the pages of the New Testament, we simply have to look at the gospel that Yeshua proclaimed. Yeshua did not proclaim a gospel of his death, burial, and resurrection. These were but signs of the gospel truth that he spent his life proclaiming. But the gospel that was preached by Yeshua was the gospel of a kingdom. Nearly all of his parables related to this subject, and he very clearly relates the gospel to the kingdom of God on several occasions. Mark 1, 14-15 Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew four twenty three, And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction from among the people. Matthew twenty four fourteen. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This was the gospel according to Yeshua, and I've already demonstrated that this was the gospel according to Paul. 
But as I said, this is something that I've taught on previously in one of the Yom Teruah specials, and so I'm not going to cover this in great detail. I'm just trying to lay some groundwork for what's to come. So if the gospel is a kingdom gospel, and this gospel is found here in Deuteronomy, and this is the saving power of the gospel is found through faith alone, then what does faith mean? How should faith be understood? And that is where this week's Parsha comes in. Because faith does not simply mean holding a certain set of facts to be true. That's a Gnostic gospel, a gospel that saves based on what a person knows. That is not a biblical gospel. Faith must be bigger than that. The true depth of the word faith and how it is applied through the New Testament is found in this week's Parsha. So let's read the text for this week and then dig into the concept of saving faith. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through the end of chapter 7. Hear, O Israel, Hashem, our God, Hashem is one. And you shall love Hashem your God with all your heart and with all your being and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be in your heart. And you shall impress them upon your children and shall speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise up and shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And it shall be when Hashem your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Yitzhak, and Yaakov, to give you great and good cities which you did not build, and houses filled with all kinds of goods which you did not fill, and wells dug which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Be on guard, lest you forget Hashem, who brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim from the house of bondage. Fear Hashem your God, and serve him, and swear by his name. Do not go after other mighty ones, the mighty ones of the people who are all around you. For Hashem your God is a jealous God in your midst, lest the displeasure of Hashem your God burn against you. Then he shall destroy you from the face of the earth. Do not try Hashem your God as you tried him at Massah. Diligently guard the commands of Hashem your Elohim and his witnesses and his laws which he has commanded you, and you shall do what is right and good in the eyes of Hashem, that it might be well with you, and you go and possess the good land which Hashem swore to your fathers, to drive out all your enemies from before you as Hashem has spoken. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is the meaning of the witness and the laws and the right rulings which Hashem our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Mitzrayim, and Hashem brought us out of Mitzrayim with a strong hand. And Hashem sent signs and wonders, great and grievous, upon Mitzrayim, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there to bring us in, to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers. And Hashem commanded us to do all these laws, to fear Hashem our God, for our good always, to keep us alive as it is today. And it is righteousness for us when we guard to do all the command before Hashem our God as he has commanded us. When Hashem your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, he shall also clear away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Chivites and the Yebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when Hashem your Elohim gives them over to you, you shall strike them and put them under the ban completely. Make no covenant with them and show them no favor. And do not intermarry with them. You do not give your daughter to his son, and you do not take his daughter for your son. For he turns your sons away from following me to serve other mighty ones. Then the displeasure of Hashem shall burn against you and promptly destroy you. 
but this is what you do to them. Break down their altars and smash their pillars and cut down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are set apart people to Hashem your Elohim. Hashem, your Elohim has chosen you to be a people for himself, a treasured possession above all peoples on the face of the earth. Hashem did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more numerous than any other peoples, for you were least of all peoples. But because of Hashem loving you and because of him guarding the oath which he swore to your fathers, has brought you out with a strong hand and ransomed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And you shall know that Hashem, your God, he is God, the trustworthy God, guarding covenant and loving commitment for a thousand generations with those who love him and those who guard his commands, but repaying those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He does not delay to do so with him who hates him. He repays him to his face. And you shall guard the command and the laws and the right rulings which I command you today to do them. And it shall be because you hear these right rulings and shall guard and do them that Hashem your Elohim shall guard with you the covenant and the loving commitment which he swore to your fathers and shall love you and bless you and increase you and shall bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil and the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land of which he swore to your fathers to give you. Blessed are you above all peoples. There is not going to be a barren man or a barren woman among you or among your livestock. And Hashem shall turn away from you all the sickness and put on you none of the evil diseases of Mitzrayim which you have known, but he shall put them on all those who hate you. And you shall consume all the peoples whom Hashem your God is delivering over to you. Your eyes shall not pardon them, and do not serve their mighty ones, for that is a snare to you. And when you say in your heart, These nations are greater than I, I am unable to drive them out. Do not be afraid of them. Remember well what Hashem your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials by which your eyes saw, and the signs and the wonders, and the strong hand and the outstretched arm by which Hashem your Elohim brought you out. Hashem your God does do so to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. And Hashem your God also sends the hornet among them until those who are left who hide themselves from you are destroyed. Do not be afraid of them, for Hashem the great and awesome God is in your midst. And Hashem your God shall drive out those nations before you, little by little. You are not allowed to destroy them all at once, lest their beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But Hashem your God shall deliver them over to you and destroy them with a great destruction until they are consumed. And he shall give their kings into your hand and shall destroy their name from under the heavens. No one is going to be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. The carved images of their mighty ones you are to burn with fire. Do not covet the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it. For it is abomination to Hashem your God. And do not bring an abomination into your house, lest you be accursed like it. Utterly loathe it and utterly hate it, for it is accursed. Words mean things. Now, this is funny when you consider that the Hebrew word devar the word that's the root of Devarim, the name of this book, means more than just words, but it also means things. Words do indeed mean things in the Hebrew language, but this is also an applicable idea. Words mean things, but not in the way that we usually conceptualize them. Modern understanding of this phrase is a dictionary understanding. A word means a single thing unless it also means another thing. And then we map out meanings for words in order to apply them. Last week, as we looked at the Hebrew word Shema and the range of meaning that it contained in this word, on one end, the word means hear, sound entering the ear and connecting to some idea inside of you. On the other hand, it also means obey, 
the rote action that is done simply because we've been told to do it. And these definitions, they create a range that this word can fall into when it is used. But it is context that will determine the meaning in any given case. But as we talked of last week, most often, both words, hear and obey, are not necessarily accurate. Instead, there's a word that threads the needle of these extremes that in most cases is a better fit than either hear or obey, and that word is hearken. Not a passive English word like hear, and not an exclusively action-based word like obey. Rather, it's a word that implies a consideration of what's being heard, or even a meditation on what is being heard, allowing what you hear to change you. But the word Shema in various applications can fall anywhere within this scope of meaning. And when we consider it, this is how language works. There are many times where a word has an entire range of meaning, and the application for how the word is used is to be determined by the context in which it's used. And sometimes this is just a simple issue of a singular word being used to mean multiple things. Words like bank, which can mean a financial institution or the edge of a river. Or arm, which can be an appendage to your upper torso or it can mean to acquire weapons. Bark, this is the sound that a dog makes, the outer covering of a tree, or a sweet covering that can be put onto desserts. Or date, this is a fruit from a tree or an intimate outing taken by two people, or a specific day on a calendar. Words that legitimately have multiple meanings. Other times, there are words that can mean one thing and also mean the exact opposite. We talked of this when we considered the word sin in Leviticus. The word dust can mean the stuff that makes a thing dirty, the action of applying said dirtying substance, or the act of removing the substance. Overlook can mean to not see something or a place designed specifically to look at something, etc. Then there are words that can mean certain things based on the surrounding culture. A word like sheep falls into this category as it can mean a woolly mammal or it can culturally mean a person who is weak, helpless, or easily led around. Simply consider the difference between American and Britain. Some words have very different meanings in each culture, even though we speak nearly the same language. For example, chips. In the U.S., chips means flat-fried potato rounds, crunchy. In the U.K., however, chips means what we would call french fries. Or the word jumper. In the U.K., a jumper is a cozy pullover sweater. In the U.S., a jumper is a person who is about to or who has committed suicide by jumping off of something tall. Or the word torch. In the U.S., this word means a flaming stick. But in the U.K., this is the word that's used for what we would call a flashlight. And so we must be careful when we encounter words to ensure that we are not placing our own cultural bias on what's being said, and that we correctly identify the range of meaning for the word, and then discover where within that range the surrounding context places the idea for the specific usage in each case. Sounds complicated. Uh, it's not really. It's something we naturally do. But this goes double when it comes to ideas that are as important as how we are to interact with our God. And so as we open this parsha, the first word that we encounter is Shema. In fact, the first five verses compose what is referred to as the Shema in Judaism. The command that is counted by Yeshua to be the most important command in Scripture. 
Mark 12, 29 through 30. And Yeshua answered him, The first of all commands is, Hear, O Israel, Hashem our God, Hashem is one. And you shall love Hashem your God with all your heart and with all your being and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first command. The first command, the greatest command, the command that leads off this legal portion of Deuteronomy. Love God. Love God with all that you have. Everything within you is to be leveraged toward this goal. And as we consider what we are to love God with in Deuteronomy, the list is with all our heart, our soul, and our might. Now, these words each bear a bit of examination. Heart is one that we've touched on before. Until around 500 CE, the heart was thought to be the seat of the intellect. It was where thoughts occurred, but it's also where emotions occurred. The word soul is the word nefesh. Again, it's a word that we've touched on before as well. It's a word that concretely means throat, but by expansion means the entirety of a person. The body, mind, emotions, will, memory, and identities. The final word, me'od, does not mean strength or might. In fact, it's a word that means exceedingly, or muchness, or greatly. But the pronoun attached to this word is your. Love God with your exceedingly. Or is it with your muchness? Or perhaps love him with your greatly. This is a word that describes the entirety of a person's influence. It's everything that they touch. And so when I say the Shema in English, I choose to use the word resources as that final thing that we are to love God with. Love God with your mind, every part of your being, and every resource that's under your control. This passage can be pictured like a set of three concentric circles, the innermost being the heart and moving outward to our entire self, and then continuing even further outward to every resource under our control. And this is how we are to love our God. And this is the first and greatest command according to Yeshua. And it's from here that all other commands flow, and it is here where the gospel begins. As we continue through the Parsha, we find a singular idea approached over and over from different perspectives. So let's go through the Parsha and identify these ideas. When you get to the land and you're satisfied, don't forget Hashem and turn to other gods. If you do so, you will kindle the kingly jealousy of Hashem and you will be destroyed. Guard the commands and things will go well with you in the future. Instead of destroying you from the land, I will destroy others who do not fear me from the land. So fear me alone. And when your children ask you why we keep these commands, you will explain to them what I did for you. You will tell the story of how I brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and brought you to myself. How I became your king and gave you commands and laws which we do, because if we do them, then we will gain life. This entire chapter describes the attitude that those in Israel are to have towards Hashem. It begins with the command, love God with everything within you. And then it provides a warning, don't forget about him when you're at ease. And then a contrast, if you follow other gods, you will be destroyed. But if you follow me, I will destroy those around you who do not follow me. And then a lesson for the generations. We do all of this because Hashem redeemed us out of slavery and bondage, and he has become our king. 
Chapter 7 then continues these ideas and it opens with a recognition of who the enemies are that were described earlier. Seven of the nations that inhabit the land of Canaan that are to be wiped out and shown no quarter in that conquest. And when you settle in the land, do not intermarry with the remainder of those who inhabit the land, because they will lead you away to serving other gods. And if you turn to serving other gods, you will be destroyed. Instead, destroy their gods, destroy their altars, destroy their temples, and destroy their holy places. You are a people wholly dedicated to Hashem. You belong to Him alone. And then the contrast is approached the corollary of the Shema. Hashem loves you. He chose you over all other peoples. You are his treasured possession. But understand, Hashem does not love you because you are great or powerful or numerous. He does not love you because there is something in you that is lovable. Rather, he loves you because he is keeping the oath that he swore to your forefathers. And it is this love that led him to bring you out of Egypt. Now, to the modern ears, this sounds like a terrible situation. Wait, you don't love me because of me? You only love me because you made a promise a long time ago? Your love is based solely on that and not on an emotional high or a charged feeling of desire? How many of you would like to hear your spouse say this to you? I don't love you because you're anything special. I love you only because I made a promise to your father to watch over you. In many cases in modern marriages, a statement such as this would be grounds for a divorce, and if not that, then at least a frigid marriage. But when examined without emotional bias, a love based on a vow that will not be broken is a love that will not change. Time may pass. Your body may fail. Your mind might fail. Your circumstances might bring you low, but my choice to love you is not based on any of that. My love is based on a vow that I took. For better or worse, in sickness and health, for richer or poorer until death parts us. That vow supersedes any emotion that might pass away in a moment or a decade. The vow stands. What's being described here is chesed. This is another word that's hard to translate in English, but as we've discussed before, it comes closest to meaning loyalty to covenant. No matter what happens, God says, I will remain loyal to my covenant with you. The only thing that can break that covenant is if you choose repeatedly to break the covenant of your own accord by taking covenant action towards one of my competitors. In a marriage, that's adultery. And in a relationship with Hashem, that is, idolatry. And this kind of love with our God or with our spouse, it should give us comfort. Because it's not fickle. Beauty fades. Charm deceives. But a love that's based on a vow is forever, no matter what may happen. As long as you stay true, I will stay true. In fact, God, he'll stay true even longer. And that's where verse 9 of chapter 7 states explicitly, Hashem is a God of faithfulness. He guards covenants and loyalty to covenants for a thousand generations to those who love him the same way in return. But those who hate him, those who reject him, those he will reject. And the unstated question is then, who will you be?
Someone who remains faithful because of a vow and a promise, or one who rejects him when times get tough, or when times get easy. And then chapter 7 ends with a series of promises that Hashem makes to his people. And it is because you keep his commands. It is because you demonstrate your love for God that he will watch over you. He will bless the fruit of your womb. He will bless you with health. He will bless you with victory and power over your enemies. Do not be afraid of them. Simply remember what Hashem did to Pharaoh. And this conquest that you're about to engage in, do not be afraid to press forward. He will cause them fear. He will cause plagues. He will drive them out before you. You may have to chase them or strike them down with the sword, but understand that Hashem went before you and cleared the way to make your victory assured. And when you've driven them out, do not worship their gods. Do not bring their gods into your house or you will be like them, utterly abhorrent in the eyes of Hashem. Do not bow to any other king. Do not bow to any other god. In short, these chapters say, Remain true to the covenant of Hashem, and do not join yourself to his enemies, and he will bestow on you great reward. And contained in these ideas is the beginning of the gospel of the kingdom. For what is it that accompanied Yeshua as he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom of God? Matthew 4.23 And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. The benefit of health and healing that was promised right here in this chapter. And what was it that Yeshua responded when John the Baptist began to doubt if Yeshua truly was the Messiah? Matthew eleven two through 5 And when Yohanan had heard in the prison of the works of Messiah, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And Yeshua answering said to them, Go, report to Yochanan what you hear and see. Blind receive sight and lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and deaf hear. Dead are raised up and poor are brought the good news. The gospel of the kingdom of God was accompanied by the blessings that were recounted here at the end of Deuteronomy 7. You will be blessed in life. You will be blessed in health. And no enemy will be able to stand against you. Matthew sixteen fifteen through 19 and he said to them, And you, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, said, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Yeshua answering said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in the heavens. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I shall build my assembly, and the gates of Sheol shall not overcome it. And I shall give you the keys of the reign of heavens, and whatever you bind on earth shall having been bound in the heavens, and whatever you loosen on earth shall be having been loosened in the heavens. On this rock, the rock of Peter's confession of Yeshua as Messiah and King, on this confession, the kingdom of God is built, and the enemy will not be able to withstand that kingdom. And all of this is predicated on putting Hashem first, on taking a vow of loyalty to him, and then following through on it. The distillation of the ideas in these chapters being a declaration of allegiance to Hashem. And it is in this allegiance that salvation is found. 
And we've all heard it before, I'm sure. And it's been drilled into our mind in Western Protestant circles. Ephesians 2, 8 through through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not of works, so that no one should boast. Understanding grace and faith is foundational to determining how salvation works. Because salvation is the result of faith in the gospel, which leads to grace. And so we need a proper definition of faith, or pisteo as it is in the Greek. Now, if you do a simple Google search for the definition of the word faith, you'll get the modern cultural understanding of what faith is from the Oxford Dictionary. 1. Complete trust or confidence in someone or something. 2. Strong belief in God or in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than on proof. 3. Belief in general. And that is how the world today understands faith. Simply placing your trust in another to do something or a strong belief that's not based on any proof. This is our cultural understanding of pisteo. Mental assent. Nothing more is required. Some, however, recognize that this mental assent then carries forth into actions, and so you will live out what you believe. And this fits perfectly with our modern understanding of the gospel. And what is our modern understanding of the gospel? Well, Paul seems to tell us what it is. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-6 But brothers, I make known to you the good news, which I brought as good news to you, which you also did receive and in which you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold that first which I also received. If you hold fast to that word which I brought as good news to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you as the first which I also received. The Messiah died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Peter and then the twelve. You see, Paul states that the gospel that he preached was a gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Mentally assent to these truths and you will be saved. This is how faith works in the modern world. But if this is the gospel, then what is it that Yeshua preached? Did he preach his own death, burial, and resurrection? Or is it possible that we're being too limited when we read Paul in this passage? Verse 1 says, I'm going to tell you the gospel, this gospel you received and in which you stand. Verse 2 then says, it's through this that you are being saved if you hold fast to this gospel. And then the remainder through verse 8 seems to recount these tenets of faith. Yeshua died for our sins, was buried, raised, and was seen by many after his resurrection. And this is where most stop. No more context needed. That This is it. Clear cut, plainly stated, a series of facts to be assented to. But if you study Paul at all, you know that he will go off on tangents and then return to a main topic in the course of time. So let's check to see if Paul does something like this in this chapter. After this section, Paul does go on an aside where he speaks of himself and his own experience. Then in verse 12, the topic of death and resurrection that Yeshua experienced is approached once again. Ah, so he does return to the topic. Well, let's continue on. Paul then contemplates the nature of death and resurrection in comparison to Adam. And verse 22 through 28 contain a furthering of the gospel message. 
It is because of what happened that was told of in verse 1 through 8 that we can be sure of this later portion, which is also part of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 28. And each in his own order, Messiah, the first fruits, then those who are of Messiah at his coming. Then the end, when he delivers up the kingdom to God the Father, when he has brought to nothing all rule and all authority and power. For he has to reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be brought to nothing is death. For he has put all under his feet. But when he says all are put under him, it is clear that he who put all under him is accepted. And when all are made subject to him, then the Son himself shall also be subject to him who put all under him, in order that Elohim be all in all. Uh, So the gospel is not limited to the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua, but it continues on to his enthronement and him being appointed as the ultimate authority until his death is defeated and the kingdom is handed back over to the rightful ruler, Hashem Most High. And it is Yeshua that is the one who will have all things put under his feet, the King of Kings. And as chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians closes, this idea is taken even further when it describes Yeshua coming back to earth as the king to set up his kingdom. And it closes with this, 1 Corinthians 15, 57-58. But thanks to God who gives the overcoming through our master Yeshua the Messiah. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the master, knowing that you, your labor is not in vain in the master. Thanks to God who gives us victory. Deuteronomy 7, anyone? And how do we get the victory? Through the Lord, the Master, Yeshua, the promised and anointed King. Notice how at the very beginning he recommends that they stay steadfast and immovable in the gospel. And at the very end of this chapter, he tells them, brothers, be steadfast and immovable. The gospel is contained between those bookmarks. The entire chapter contains the gospel, not just the first eight verses. You see, when we follow through on the context of the gospel message presented in 1 Corinthians 15 and wherever it's proclaimed in the Bible, the message always hinges on the kingdom of God and the King Yeshua. And so when we are saved by grace through faith, how does saving faith work? Do we simply mentally assent to a series of facts, or is there perhaps a better and more ancient understanding of faith? Well, when you do your Google search, if you choose to not simply take Google's word for it and go to the first hit, you'll find Webster's Dictionary. And when you click the link, you find a vastly different definition for faith than what was provided by Google through the Oxford Dictionary. Allegiance to duty or a person. Loyalty, fidelity to one's promises, a sincerity of intentions such as acting in good faith, belief and trust in and loyalty to God, belief in the traditional doctrines of a religion, firm belief in something for which there is no proof, and complete trust. Do you notice that Webster's Dictionary begins with the concept that faith is primarily attached to the idea of allegiance to a duty or an entity. And if we look into ancient literature, this is what we find more often than not. And this is the stance that Matthew Bates takes in his book, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. 
So just as I spoke of last week, let's look to the usage of this word from extra-biblical sources to gain a better understanding of how the word was understood culturally. And so we must look for the Greek word pisteo or pistis in other Greek documents of the time. We find that this definition of allegiance and loyalty works the best in those cases. Such as in Josephus' Antiquities of the Jews, L12, chapter 3, section 4, we read this. Moreover, this Antiochus bare testimony to our piety and fidelity, pistis, in an epistle of his written when he was informed of a sedition in Phrygia and Lydia. The word fidelity in this passage, a word which means loyalty or being faithful, as in faithful to a wife or king, this is the word pistis in Greek. And in this place, it is used to speak of those who remain loyal in the midst of a rebellion. Another place where we find this word used outside the canonical Bible is in 1 Maccabees 10, 26-28, and it says, Whereas ye have kept covenants with us, and continued in our friendship, not joining yourself with our enemies, we have heard hereof, and are glad. Wherefore now continue ye still to be faithful unto us, and we will recompense you for the things ye do on our behalf, and will grant you many immunities, and give you rewards. It says, continue to be faithful unto us by not joining our enemies and keeping covenants with us, and you will receive many immunities and rewards. This is exactly what Deuteronomy 6 and 7 states. This pagan king, King Demetrius, the man who overthrew Alexander V in Macedonia and ruled in Syria for a time, he made this offer to the victorious Jews. This pagan king basically gave Israel the same promise that Hashem gives Israel. Remain faithful to me, keep the covenants that you have with me, and you will be granted great immunities and rewards. And this promise was based on continued pistis to the king. And finally, Teresa Morgan in her book, Roman Faith and Christian Faith, Pistis and Fides in Early Roman Empire and Early Churches, she states that the oath that was sworn by Roman soldiers was based on Fidelis, the closest Latin equivalent to the Greek Pisteo. She recounts that in this context, it was continued fidelity that the soldier swore to uphold, and this promise was not to be a one-time decision, but one that was to last the entirety of the time frame of the oath duration of the campaign, or time of service. A continual allegiance, one that is made daily for the entirety of the time of your service. Three extra-biblical instances where the word pistis is used, we find the idea of allegiance behind the word. And so allegiance is well within the range of the usage of the word pistis. And so equipped with this, we can return to the New Testament and see if this idea of allegiance to a king is upheld throughout the text when speaking of saving faith. Now, I am not going to be exhaustive in this. Let's pick a few and just see what we find. Titus 2, 9 through 10 says, Servants should be subject to their own masters to be well-pleasing in every way, not back-talking, not stealing, but showing all good pistis, so that they adorn the teachings of God our Savior in every way. Now, obviously, servants are not expected to believe that their master exists, but they are to act in allegiance to their master so as to highlight their faithfulness to God. Matthew twenty three twenty three. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
because you tithe the mint and the anise and the cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the Torah, the justice and the compassion and the faith. These need to have been done without neglecting others. Woe to the scribes and Pharisees because they're not acting in justice, compassion, and they don't hold the right beliefs. Or they don't believe in God? Or are they neglecting justice, compassion, and true allegiance to God? Second Thessalonians 1, 4-8 So that we ourselves boast of you among the assemblies of God for your endurance and belief, pistis, in all your persecutions and in afflictions which you are bearing, clear evidence of the righteous judgment of God in order that you be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since God shall rightly repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give you who are afflicted rest with us when the Master Yeshua is revealed from heaven with his mighty messengers, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the good news of our Master Yeshua the Messiah. They endured and continued to hold the right thoughts in your head, or they endured and continued in their allegiance acting faithfully and with loyalty despite persecution. And this endurance and faithful loyalty is equated to saving faith in this passage. You, those who were faithful, will be saved, but those who are not obedient to the gospel of Master Yeshua, the promised king, will perish. Colossians 2, 5-6 For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Messiah. Therefore, as you accepted Messiah Yeshua the Master, walk in him. I rejoice to see your good order and the steadfastness of your mental assent, or I have seen the evidence of your continued allegiance. This passage also doubles down on the kingly nature of Yeshua in verse 6. You accepted him as Messiah, the promised king, so walk in him or in his ways. All throughout the New Testament, we can find the word pisteo when linked to the gospel used in the manner of allegiance to king. But that does not mean that this is the only way that this word can be used. There is a range of meaning, and all of these meanings can be found in the New Testament. Matthew fifteen twenty-eight, And Yeshua answering said to her, O woman, your faith is great. Let it be to you as you desire and her daughter was healed from that hour. This woman was not declaring allegiance to Yeshua, but agreeing that she believed him to be the promised Messiah, and that he had the authority necessary to grant her wishes. In verse 22, the woman calls on Yeshua as son of David, as a show of her mental assent to his royalty. Pisteo can also mean to have confidence in something. Matthew 9, 2 and see, they were, bringing, they were bringing to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and Yeshua, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins have been forgiven. In Matthew 17.20, pistis can indeed mean belief in something unseen. And Yeshua said to them, Because of your faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it shall move, and no matter shall be impossible for you. And it can mean the proof or assurance that something will happen in the future. 
Acts 17.31, because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed and given proof, or pistis, of this day to all by raising him from the dead. And it can mean matters to be believed and assented to. Matthew 9.28, And when he came into the house, the blind men came to him, and Yeshua said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Master. You see, just like every other language, Greek is messy and words have an entire range of meaning. Yes, in some instances of pistis, or faith, it can mean mental assent to a fact or belief without proof. But in so many other places in Scripture, it carries the idea of declaring allegiance and then remaining faithful to that declaration. And when we get down to it, that is exactly what the Shema, those five verses that open this Parsha, that's what it is. It is a declaration of allegiance to Hashem as king and an agreement to act in love and loyalty to Him and His ways. And it is this, allegiance to the king, faithfulness to His ways, placing Him before all other pretenders. It is this that leads to salvation. This is saving faith. Not anything you can do, but entering into his kingdom through a declaration of him as your king. This alone will lead to entry into the kingdom of God. The rest, the series of facts, Yeshua died, he was buried, he was raised, he was seen by others, one day I'll be with him in his kingdom. These are all part of the gospel, but they're just parts. They are facts that are connected to the gospel, but they are not the whole gospel in and of themselves. The gospel of salvation is the imperial good news that Yeshua is king and that he has invited each of us to be part of his kingdom. All it takes is an oath of allegiance and you will be joined to him and enter into his kingdom here on earth. For the salvation that brings life is not simply mental assent, but a whole life dedication to the King of life. So Deresh Chai, seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.